Hi there, everyone. It's such a privilege to be starting this new series, The Attributes of God, The Attributes of God. And it's been such a powerful personal journey for myself as I've been working through this and trying to get to a place where I receive revelation concerning who God is. And today we're going to be focused on looking at the holiness of God, the holiness of God. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that this is such a sacred topic that we're dealing with today. And Lord, I open myself to you and I ask for your wisdom, Father God, that you would come and you would impart and ignite something that really shifts us to a new dimension. Right now, Lord, we ask for an activation of the revelatory dimension of God. Open our ears, open our hearts that we may hear from heaven, we pray in Jesus' mighty name. So in this series, we are going to be discussing the nature of God. And we're also going to be outlining some of the counterfeits that we have created that end up distorting how God has actually revealed himself. We'll also go into the implications on us, the created beings. You know, if God is a certain way, then there are certain consequences, right? There's certain implications of that. You know, um, I want to encourage you to really open your heart up in this particular series because I believe that God wants to do something that's potentially life-changing, you know. Um, so if God is a certain way, it has implications for us. So we're, gonna, we're also going to talk about our own lifestyle, our response, you know, how then shall we live? And so as I mentioned earlier on in this message, we're going to focus specifically on the holiness of God. It's interesting for me because the word holy as pertaining to God means different. It means uh, other. It means distinguished. So we talk about the otherness of God. We talk about how God is distinguished. You know, my ways are higher than your ways, right? Uh, his ways are so much higher than our ways, right? That's part of his holiness. Holiness is not exactly the same as purity. It involves purity, but it's so much more than that, okay? So that's important to understand. The Greek word hagios, as pertaining to our holiness, means set apart by God or for God, okay? Special to the Lord and holy his for specific use. So when you are holy, it means I'm wholly his for a specific purpose, for a specific use. And that's where we get the word sacred from, right? When something is sacred, it can't just be used for anything. You know, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer states, God is not now any holier than he ever was. And he never was holier than now. He did not get his holiness from anyone nor from anywhere. He is himself the holiness. It's important to understand that, okay? Um, he is the all holy, the holy one. He is holiness itself beyond the power of thought to grasp or of word to express, beyond the power of all praise. Language cannot express the holy. So God resorts to association and suggestion. He cannot say it outright because he would have to use words for which we know no meaning. He would have to translate it down to our unholiness. And that's why for me, I'm taking this, uh, this particular message very, very seriously because 
uh, as I've been studying the holiness of God, I realized that I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to even preach this to you because that's how sacred it is. I cannot fully describe his holy nature, but uh, by his grace, he will enable me to activate something uh, today. You see, a lot of people today treat holy like it's a swear word. Have you noticed that? The moment you talk about being holy or um, understanding God's holiness, it's kind of like, oh, you don't understand grace, my brother. You know, there's this mentality we have where we think that emphasizing holy means we're legalistic. Okay, so they think holiness and grace don't work hand in hand could not be further from the truth. The reality is that when we understand the depth of our sin, we begin to see how great His grace has been, if you think about it. That could even be a rap, right? When we begin to understand the depth of our sin, we begin to see how great His grace has been, right? Grace does not mean that God has lowered His standards, you know? I remember counseling a particular couple quite recently and the wife had to forgive the husband and the wife was saying, because I'm forgiving him, I hope he doesn't think it's okay to do that. So we've got this human mentality where we think if you forgive, then it means that you have lowered your standards. But with God, that's not the case. Okay, Grace does not mean that God has lowered his standards. The very fact that he's gracious toward you, he's gracious toward me, just shows us all the more how gracious he is because he's so holy, he's perfect, he's pure, right? Only when we understand the holiness of God will we understand the depth of our sin. And that's what Billy Graham said. Only when we understand the holiness of God will we understand the depth of our sin. I'll add to that. Only when we understand the depth of our sin will we realize the abundance of his grace towards us. You see, if God was some gangster out there, right? You know, a gangster can come and say, hey, don't worry, man. Oh, you killed that guy. I've killed lots of people before. So don't worry about that. Okay, because he's done the same. But this is a God who is perfect in all his ways, where there is no blemish in him. And yet he still forgives us. That is grace. That is grace. So if you want to turn in your Bibles or just look at the screen, Leviticus chapter 11, 44 to 45, it says from verse 44, I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. Now let's just stop there, right? You see, throughout scripture, you have people describing God based on the experience of God that they have. But there are a number of occasions where God describes himself. And we need to take that very seriously when he says, I am this way. For example, there's a time when Jesus says, hey, learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart. So gentleness and humility, that's massive. Gentle and humble in heart because Jesus describes himself that way. There were ways in which people would describe God, would describe Jesus, but there are ways in which the Godhead described themselves. So important to understand. So, it says, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. Do not make yourselves unclean by any creature that moves along the ground. I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. So in, in these two verses, he mentions it twice. Be holy because I 
I am holy. And he's describing himself as holy. Very important. In 1 Peter chapter 1, 15 to 16, we see that Peter takes this up and he repeats it. Okay, quoting the Old Testament. He says, but just as he who called you is holy. See, many people say, I'm called by God, I'm called by God, but they haven't studied the nature of God to understand what is this God like who has called me. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. Right? Very important again, because holiness manifests itself in all of life. Be holy, not just in some of the things you do. Be holy, not just in prayer meetings. Be holy, not just in church services. Be holy in all you do. Be holy, not just in your marriage, but also in your business. Be holy, not just in your parenting, but also when you're on a soccer pitch, football pitch. Then he says, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. Now, what's the principle here? Our holiness must always stem from a revelation of his holiness. Otherwise, it becomes legalistic works. So there are a lot of people striving to be holy, striving for holiness, but they don't have a revelation of God's holiness. So it becomes something that is stemming from fleshly pride. You see, so holy is one of the ways God describes himself. And I've said earlier on that um, some, some of these things we need to fully understand and really grasp, especially when it's God himself describing himself in that particular way. You know, recently people have debated whether a particular well-known footballer is best positioned. Okay. And it was interesting because, you know, some people say, no, he's a number 10. He's a number 10. He's definitely better as a number 10. Some people say, no, a number six. But in a recent interview where he was speaking, he was asked, what's your best position? And he said, in this team, this is my best position, right? And the person who was talking about it said, so guys, you can't argue with that. He's described himself. We need to take it seriously when God describes himself. You see, and by the way, because the Bible says, be holy as I am holy. If you don't want to walk in holiness, if you don't want to be holy, then you don't want to be like God. You see, we can't just pick and choose which aspects of God we want to tap into. We need to be able to say, if God is describing himself this way and then instructing us to also be like that because he is like that, then we need to do so. So let's go a bit deeper into this. In the book of Psalms 96 verse 9, it says, Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. I've always loved that phrase, the splendor of his holiness. Some translations actually say the beauty of his holiness. Holiness is beautiful when it's God's holiness. Okay, it is beautiful. And you see, the interesting thing is the Hebrew people were comfortable with ambiguity, you know. And by the way, ambiguity, being able to cope with ambiguity is actually a leadership quality. All right. They were comfortable with ambiguity. They were comfortable with what seems like paradox, unlike we are, unlike us, you see. So here's the thing. You can enjoy the beauty of his holiness whilst still trembling before him. See, worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Worship the Lord in the beauty of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. I believe God is calling us to draw near, to enjoy the beauty of his splendor, the beauty of his holiness, whilst at the same time revering him with trembling. Here's the thing. The trembling doesn't nullify the beauty of his splendor. 
And you see what I've realized is many people will just focus on the beauty with no trembling. Other people will tremble before God in fear, but never take time to enjoy the beauty of his splendor. I believe that as we mature, as we walk with the Lord, we embrace both. And that's seemingly a paradox, but it's not. It's where we embrace the ambiguity of these different dimensions of God. You know, the Bible talks about the kindness and severity of God. The Bible talks about grace and truth. And we need to embrace these things that seem like they're paradoxes. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 23, it says this, I will show the holiness of my great name. Again, God describing himself. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations. We know it's the same today, isn't it? Right? The name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. This is an extremely powerful passage of scripture. You see, God's holiness is important to him. And the word for holy that is used here is kadash. So usually when you see the word holy in the Old Testament, it's that word kadash, right? It means holy. And this is why he says he's jealous over us. He's jealous over us. God is, he says, my name is jealous. If you look in Exodus chapter 34, verse 14, he says, do not worship any other God for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. That's a very powerful statement there. He, see, he wants his name to be holy in our lives. He wants us to be uh, acknowledging the sacredness of his name. He wants us to be wholly his, completely consecrated to him, not paying attention to anything else, but fully his. He wants to be set apart in our lives. And you see, when he sees that this is not the case, what does he do? He'll often take us through a process, the process of God that my wife was preaching about. He'll take us through a process that leads us to deeper consecration because he's jealous over that, okay? See, the scripture here that I've just read to you, it's, it's also showing us that we play a role in proving God holy in the world's eyes. We play a role in proving the, 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 the Lord holy in the world's eyes. And that's why it says, when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. So you have profaned my name in the nations, you see, by not setting me apart, by not acknowledging my lordship fully in your life. Okay. And God is like, you know what? I'm going to vindicate my name in the nations. I'm going to vindicate my name in the nations by what I do through you. When I'm proved holy through you before their eyes. I believe that that's one of the ways in which God wants to operate through us as believers today. It's when we declare his holiness to the nations verbally, but it's also when we show his holiness by receiving his holiness, by living out that life where we are set apart for him, where we are malleable for him, where we can be used by him. And that's why scripture says, you know what? The time has come where I'm distinguishing or differentiating between the righteous Okay, and the wicked. And when he does that, when he distinguishes between the righteous and the wicked and elevates the righteous who are set apart for his purposes, that's when his name will not be profaned by the nations and they will see his holiness once again. But he wants to do it through us. 
You see, our holiness must come from what we see in him. This is so important. Our holiness must come from what we see in him or else it results in fleshly boasting that cannot survive in his presence. The Bible tells us that no flesh shall glory in his presence. In Ezekiel 38 verse 23, he says, And so I will show my greatness and my holiness, and I will make myself known in the sight of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Then they will know that I am the Lord. You see, that's why we talk about making God famous in the nations. And when we say that, it's a bit of a, um, a funky phrase we like to use. But we're basically saying, God, we want to honor you. God, we consecrate ourselves to you, all right, for your purposes, that people will see your holiness. You are making yourself known in the sight of many nations. How does he do that? Is it just about angels just suddenly appearing and then God doing his thing? He, he's chosen to do it through us. You see, in the book of Exodus, chapter 33, 18 to, to, um, to 33. Let's have a look at this. Verse 18. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. And I believe that many of you have been praying this type of prayer. You want to see the Lord. You want to really experience his glory. Okay. Now, this is not a casual thing. You know, we live in the day and age of people just singing these Jesus is my girlfriend type of songs, you know, type of thing. And the fear of the Lord is no longer there, right? Then Moses said, show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And, will, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. It's almost like God had to remind Moses of his otherness. Okay. Uh, when you look at this. Okay. This is part of, and I will preach on this sometime, the aseity of God. He's self-existing. Right. He chooses how he wants to be. It doesn't come from someone else or somewhere else. He comes from himself. All right. Um, and it goes on to say in verse 20. But he said, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. Now, Moses should have known this, but it's like God is reminding him. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Now, isn't this interesting? Do you remember the cherub and the seraphim? What are they doing? What are their wings doing? Covering their faces. Okay. Because you can't see the face of God. You can't see God's glory and not be affected by it, right? You know, the glory can do good things for you, but the glory can also destroy you because we are human beings. We cannot uh, experience God's glory, his tangible glory in that way and just remain the same, you know? And that's why my concern is many people will talk about, hey, you know what, this happened, ooh, the glory and so on, and are very casual about it, but nothing changes, no lifestyle change, right? And he says, I'll put you in, a in the cleft of a rock and cover you with my hand and you will see my back. The word there in the Hebrew is actually my hindquarters. You'll see my back, but my face must not be seen, must not be seen. Now, what is the impact on Moses and on the people of Israel when this happened? Well, we see this in the next chapter in Exodus 34, 29 to 30, right? Remember, Moses had only just seen the backside of God, right? The back, just God just passing by. Look at this. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, 
he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. That's what happens when we come into contact with the living God. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant and they were afraid to come near him. That is the holiness of God, ladies and gentlemen. That is the holiness of God. That's how mighty God is. He didn't even see God's face. But because he had spoken to God, he was so radiant. And the people who then saw him were afraid to come near him. I think that's amazing. So we see in this passage the impact of coming into contact with such a holy God, such a glorious God. Powerful. So what's our response to his holiness? How are we supposed to respond? How then shall we live? In Philippians 2 verses 14 to 16, it says, Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Verse 15, So that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. You see, Paul, the apostle, right? He's writing this while he's in prison, right? Philippians is one of the prison epistles. And he's challenging them around this. Basically, he's communicating it's not enough to be born again. Don't settle for just being born again. But be blameless, be pure, so that you can shine in this crooked generation. Why? He was interested in God vindicating his holiness before the nations, you see. And then he goes on to say, then I'll be able to boast on the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor in vain. So from Paul's perspective, I would have run and labored in vain if you guys were not walking in holiness. You see, many of us grew up eating from enamel plates, you know, when we were young. And then what we called china plates, right, were the ones that were set aside for the guests. Some of you remember that, right? Now, they were for special use. They were for special use. And you could actually say, in a sense, these plates are holy. Why? They're set apart plates for special use. You see, if you're truly holy, then it means you understand that God has set you apart for special use. And that's not a statement of arrogance. It's actually a statement of understanding God's nature. And, and actually embracing that statement, be holy as I am holy. Okay, so <clears throat> this is the sense we actually get when Paul is instructing Timothy and basically saying to him, you know what, a soldier doesn't get involved in civilian affairs. You know, and soldiers are actually good examples of this very often because often soldiers are quite disciplined compared to other professions. OK, they've got certain rituals. They've got a certain code that they operate with. And Paul says, you know what? You're a soldier in Christ's army. Don't get involved in civilian affairs. And I think too many Christians today are, are just getting involved in civilian affairs, if you know what I'm talking about. Right. And I'm speaking figuratively here, and I'm just saying we need to be different. But it's not a difference that is based on striving. It's a difference that comes from a revelation of God's holiness. We saw this in South Africa during the time of the riots. You know, uh, the police, some of the police would actually let people just loot, you know. In some places, certain police would actually just say, okay, just take and go, just quickly, quickly take and go. But I remember asking someone, I said, well, what about when the army came in? Army was different, right? Army was more disciplined. 
And so I love the way Paul uses the analogy of soldiers and what soldiers are like. So we see this in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 to 5. He says, suffer hardships, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life. My question to you is, are you a soldier of Christ? Like Paul is describing here. Next question is, are you in active service? There are many people who will say, yes, I'm a soldier of Christ. I'm a soldier of Christ. But they're not active. They're not active. They're not reaching the lost. They're not making disciples. They're not uh, living their lives where every single hour of the day is consecrated to God. People ask me, Paul, how do you do all the stuff you do? To be honest with you, God gave me a revelation uh, some time back on use of time. And he said, you know what? Each day is a gift to you, consecrated to me. So I like to consecrate chunks of my day. Lord, what's the best way I can glorify you in these next 90 minutes? What's the best way I can glorify you in the next 90 minutes? What's the best way I can glorify you in the 90 minutes after that? It's so important to have this revelation that each day is a gift. Each day is a gift and we must use it to glorify God. We no longer belong to ourselves. We were bought for a price and that price was so precious. It was the blood of Jesus and goes on to say, so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Verse 5, also if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. In 1 John 1 verse 5 to 6 says, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Very important. Be holy as I am holy. In him there is no darkness at all. Lord, search my heart. Search my heart and expose any dark areas. Search my heart and see if there's any wickedness in me. Why? God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. Many people today talk about an intimacy with Jesus, but they don't seem to care about the darkness that, we, that they walk in, right? So they're not living out the truth, they're living a lie. True intimacy with Jesus results in darkness fleeing. True intimacy with Jesus results in a revelation of his light, a revelation of his holiness. That's the essence of who he is. He says, I am holy and be holy as I am. You see, so we have no fellowship if we're walking in darkness. That's what the scripture is saying. We're living in an age where many people are questing for fellowship. They quest for fellowship and intimacy with God outside of a revelation of his holiness. Let me just say this. Your theology will always impact your morality. Your theology, your understanding of God will always impact your morality, your behavior, how you go about your life. You see, the starting point of true Christian character is a revelation of the holiness of God. I'm telling you that right now. Let me ask you this question. How different would your life be if you had a revelation that you have been set apart by God and for God? Just think about that in all aspects of your life. How different would your life be if you had this revelation? I've been set apart by God for God, right? For special use, for special use. I'd like you to just think and reflect on your greatest gifts and your greatest talents. 
How different would your life be if all your talents and all your areas of gifting were set apart for God's special use? How different would your life be if that talent of yours, that great gift of yours, was actually set apart for God's special use? You see, very important, very important question. And I I encourage you to take time to reflect on this, right? In your own time, as you pray through this message and ask yourself, Lord, where do I need to shift? You see, the scriptures tell us that there's a link between purity of heart and seeing God. That's why in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, it says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Again, many people are trying hard to see God, but they're not concerned about the condition of their heart. You see, the concerning thing is that they convince themselves that they have seen and they've experienced God, but they actually haven't. So they attribute certain experiences to God, but it's just what's going on in their soul. Because the Bible says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And later on also in the epistles, it actually talks about that, that without purity, we won't see God. You see, so the sign that we actually know him is that we obey his commands. And this is not legalism. I'm preaching the word now. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 to 6, it says, by this we know that we have come to know him. So how do you know? This person knows him. This person knows him. Watch this. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. And this is the sad thing because in this day and age, you've got ministers of the gospel, but I don't know if it's the true gospel. And their mindset is very much, I've got this secret knowledge. That's what an occult actually means, right? Secret. I've got the secret knowledge. I've got the special, exclusive revelation. But their lifestyle is saying something else. Okay. By this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments. The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him The love of God has truly been perfected. So loving God, loving God and obedience and knowing him all go hand in hand. Okay. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Please, let's not keep saying we are in him, but just living however we want to live. You see, so again, we're living in an age where people have separated knowledge and obedience, knowledge and love, obedience and love. My friends, when you have a true revelation of God, you will walk in holiness because this is the essence of who God is. It's important to understand this. You know that when the Hebrew people wanted to emphasize something, the same way that we use exclamation marks and, you know, underline things and put things in bold and so on, they would do that kind of thing. But one of the things they also did was verbal repetition, verbal repetition. Do you remember when Jesus would say things like, verily, verily, I say to you, all right? Okay, that's in King James, right? Verily, verily, I say unto you, right? When you'd say, truly, truly, I say to you, That's the same as amen, okay? This is true, this is true. You see, with many of us, we say amen after someone has said something, right? Jesus would say it beforehand, right? So be it, so be it, truly, 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 I say to you, he was emphasizing something. 
And it's interesting because holy is basically the only attribute of God that is emphasized in this way, where it's said multiple times in a row to emphasize something. And I want to just go into this now in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. You knew that I was going to use this passage also, right? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne. Now, some people might think this happened in the temple and he was seeing, but I believe that God actually opened Isaiah's eyes and he was actually having a glimpse into heaven, right? In a similar way that... Um, uh, took place in the book of the Revelation, right? And he says, I saw the Lord high and exalted. God is high and exalted. Let's not relate to him like he's just, he's just low, you know? He's high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, back in the day when you wanted to emphasize the might of a king, right? Um, it, it was seen in how he would dress was seen in his robe okay and the kings that were really great they had this massive train in terms of the robe right uh, so the attire is really quite key um, <clears throat> the train of his robe filled the temple above him were seraphim each with six wings with two wings they covered their faces with two they covered their feet and with two they were flying now when god creates he doesn't waste Okay, he creates each body part for a purpose, doesn't he? And it's interesting that these seraphim had six wings. Six, they're fly, six, two, they're flying with, right? But with the other two, they covered their faces. And with the other two, they covered their feet. Isn't that interesting? So God, when he created them, he created them to worship him. They would be in his presence day in, day out. And the purpose of Four of those wings was just to cover themselves because the glory was so strong. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. It's interesting that they weren't saying other things. What's recorded in scripture is that they were saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. So why do we downplay his holiness? The whole earth is full of his glory. And I find it interesting that they were calling out to each other, holy, holy, holy. And I believe that God is calling us to do the same today, to declare his otherness, to remind each other that God is mighty, God is holy, God is worthy of all praise, God is high and lifted up, to emphasize his otherness. We're supposed to be doing that to each other, calling out, calling out, reminding each other of his majesty. You see, and this is how his glory will fill the earth. This is what magnifying the Lord is. It's about declaring his nature to all the earth. And we declare his wondrous works. We declare his nature with our words, but also with our lifestyle. So powerful. In Isaiah 6 verse 5, we see Isaiah's response to all of this. He, he wasn't casual. He wasn't like, hey, this is interesting, man. Oh, cool vision. Hey, what are those winged creatures, well, they look interesting. Six wings, never seen that before. He wasn't doing that. His initial response was, woe to me, woe to me. The closer we get to God and the more of his glory that we see, guess what happens? We have such a revelation of the depth of our sin, the depth of our unworthiness. No flesh will glory in his presence. He says, woe to me, I cried. 
I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Now he knew, maybe Moses had forgotten a bit, but he knew that, hey, you can't just see God and still survive. Now, it's interesting to see what Isaiah's response was to a revelation of God's holiness. You see, this interface with God produces brokenness, doesn't it? And this brokenness results in our sanctification. That's the process of becoming holy. In the Greek, it's the word hagiazo. You see, when people, when people say to you, oh, I've been in God's presence, but they continue just living in the same lukewarm way, you wonder which presence they're talking about. I love what Arthur uh, W. Pink says, A.W. Pink. Growing in grace is a deepening realization of our nothingness. It's a heartfelt recognition that we are not worthy of the least of God's mercies. We're not worthy. We're not worthy. We're not deserving. We're not deserving. And that's why we need to be very careful when we're claiming the promises of God to keep reminding ourselves that it is by grace. It is by grace. It's because of the covenant we have with God. Don't be the kind of person who goes before God saying, Lord, I've done this and I've done this and I've done this. So I'm worthy of these things. Uh -uh. God knows what you've done and you haven't done. Right? The nearer a man lives to God, I love this, uh, Charles Spurgeon said this, the nearer a man lives to God, the more intensely has he to mourn over his own evil heart. That's our response to his presence. In the book of the Revelation, chapter 4, verse 8 to 11, there's a similar scene. And it says, And each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around and within. Okay, looks quite freaky, doesn't it? Day and night, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to the one seated on the throne who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the one seated on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. By your will they exist and came to be. I want to say something. We say too much about ourselves in times of worship. True worship focuses on the holiness of God, the might of God, his worthiness. We need to be saying more about God and less about ourselves. It says that these guys, they, they basically bowed down before him. They fell down before the one seated on the throne. And they literally cast their crowns before their throne. Why? They saw his majesty. They saw his greatness. And they couldn't, couldn't be in his presence while still having their own crowns. Many of us in times of worship today, we still have our own crowns. When we come to worship, we prance around, you know, enjoying ourselves more than we're enjoying God. Let me tell you something. God is calling us to a place in this day and age where we walk in true holiness, set apartness, consecration before him. I can't truly focus on his worthiness and truly worship him if I'm still worshiping myself. 
in 1 John 2 verse 15. This is one of the responses to his holiness. It says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. This is a very powerful statement. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. You see, when you love the world, in other words, when you find pleasure in the world's system and the world's order, okay, and the word used for world here in the Greek is the word cosmos, you end up forfeiting divine ability to become more like Christ. That's actually what's happening. Because whoever loves the world, then love for the Father is not in them. And that word father is an interesting one. It's pate. And a father is one who imparts life, right? And is committed to imparting life. It's a progenitor, right? Bringing into being to pass on the potential for likeness. And so what we're doing is when we start loving the world, then the love of the father and for the father isn't actually in us. And what does father do? Father produces likeness. See, I can't become like God in my own strength. I need Father to do it because that's what fathers do. They produce after their own kind. And so I'm actually forfeiting divine ability to become more like Christ when I love the world. Okay? I'm forfeiting the work of Father in me. It's important to understand that. It's important to understand that. So being set apart means I do not love the world or anything in it, right? Now, what does that actually look like? It means I don't boast of what the world boasts of. It means I'm not proud of what the world is proud of, the world system is proud of. It means my identity is not in the same things, right? I'm outside that matrix, right? It's not just about religious practice, but it's about the degree to which the fear of the Lord is operating in your life. I'm holy his, I'm consecrated to him. I want to encourage you, ask yourself, how can you make it easier for God to lead you? Just live like you're holy his. How many of you have been in those situations where you're a manager or leader at work and there's someone who works under you, but they're difficult to lead. And it's very difficult dealing with them because, you know, someone will ask, but don't they come to your meetings? Yes, they come, but they're there, but they're not there. They're there, but they're distracted. I believe many Christians are like that today. Okay. Oh, but do they obey your commands? You know what, Paul, in actual fact, they end up doing the right thing, but I have to ask them three times. You see. How would my life look different if I was living like I'm wholly his? How can I make it easier for Father God to lead me? Number one, obeying him the first time he commands me. Obeying him first time. You see, everything stems from understanding I belong to him. I belong to him. There are no debates. The second thing you can do is recognize that he bought you for a price. And that price was the blood of his son. You belong to him. You belong to him. The third thing you can do is accept that his holiness is actually important to him. It's actually important to him. He wants to vindicate his holiness. He wants you set apart for special use. It's a biggie for him. He says, holy, holy, holy. He says, be holy as I'm holy. And one of the fourth things to do is to pray the prayer of consecration. Lord, my time is yours. My money is yours. My talent is yours. 
When you have that revelation that, uh, you know, your time is his, your money is his, your talent is his, everything changes. He doesn't have to twist your arm to do certain things because you already know you are his. A.W. Tozer wrote concerning the desperate need for the church to revise its concept of God, right? Because we've got this distorted conception of him. And I want to encourage you as we go deeper in this series to to just um, focus on these words. This is what A.W. Tozer said. He said, it is my opinion that the Christian conception of God current in these middle years of the 20th century is so decadent as to be utterly beneath the dignity of the Most High God and actually to constitute for professed believers something amounting to a moral calamity. Tozer goes on to say, the heaviest obligation lying upon the Christian church today is to purify and elevate her concept of God until it is once more worthy of Him. So powerful to purify and to elevate our concept of God until it is once more worthy of Him. Just think about it. Is your concept of God, the way you view God, is it worthy of Him, of the God of the Bible, based on how He describes Himself, not on how society describes Him, not on how we've created God in our own image, but on how He describes Himself. And my closing prayer is based on Psalm 139, verses 23 to 24. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Amen. God bless you. Thank you.